Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Exploring Mental Illness, everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask. Uh, I'm Derek Mulhan here with Carrie Blue. Carrie, how are you today? I am fantastic. How are you today, Derek? Not too bad. I know we had seen each other earlier in the week, and I had a big breakthrough. Uh, it took me 15 years, but I finally drove down to the Cape by myself in my car. I didn't take the highway. But I made it down there, and my parents were absolutely shocked. I wanted to surprise my stepdad for Father's Day. So that was a big, huge accomplishment for me. I have a phobia of driving on the highway. I have massive anxiety attacks. Even thinking about it, my palms will get sweaty. I used to drive on the highway all the time, and then something hit me, and I just, I'm very afraid of driving on the highway just for the simple fact that I don't think anybody's going to be able to get to me in time. There's no place to pull over. If you do have an anxiety attack, it's just, I was lucky enough that I only had to take two roads to get to the Cape. Who would have thought it was Route 44 and and Route 28? And that was it. Um, I I put it on Facebook and a lot of people were, they don't drive the highway either because I guess it's like, you know, Mad Max out there, you know, the way people are driving. It's just, it's ridiculous. So um, I'll get on the highway, but this is the first step. So so it was was pretty cool. You'd mentioned and it, it sounded like it was an emotional experience as well. Yeah, for me, it was my stepfather's tough guy, Portuguese, but he was very grateful. My mom was in tears and he was when I left. So it was uh, it was it was pretty cool knowing that I can drive down to the Cape. Now I know I can basically drive anywhere, even though it's not on the highway. It's an empowering feeling now. So uh, another thing checked off. That's wonderful. What part of the Cape, may I ask? Uh, Buzzards Bay. Lovely. See you now, maybe. We'll head there a few more times this summer, hopefully not during the busy times, and be able to spend some time on the Cape. Not a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, the, the great thing is, you know, the, the doggies, the two puggies, they missed me. Aww. So they were scratching at my door at three o'clock in the morning. You know, Uncle Derek, get out of bed. But it was, um, like I said, for my stepfather, you know, and my parents aren't getting any older. And I just had to do this. And I was trying to tell them I did it for them, but I did it for myself also. And were there any opportunities or moments where you thought you were going to turn around or you felt like you were experiencing a higher level of anxiety and needed to utilize any coping skills? There was one point where the traffic got backed up and that's when I I feel trapped. But then the traffic started moving. I never had any thoughts about turning around. I said, if you don't do this now, you're never going to do it. I was bound and determined. And plus I had bought 10 hot wieners for my stepfather, two dozen clam cakes. So I had good smells in the car and I was listening. The Red Sox were on the radio at the same time. So I had enough diversion and I had driven that way with my stepfather. So there was no reason that I, that I had to turn back. I mean, I was anxious. Of course I was. But once I got there, it was very surreal. It was like an out-of-body experience. Holy cow, I'm down the Cape and I drove myself down. And on the way back, not one ounce of anxiety on the way back. So that was a big thing. But it's funny because three days later, I had a massive anxiety attack in the middle of the night that woke me up. And I had 9-1 dialed on the phone, but I was just like, no, don't. It's the same old stuff. Just calm down. Remember my stuff and got out the same day. So, Can I ask what coping skills you used? Told myself, listen, this is nothing different. It's the same old stuff. I turned on a little light in my apartment soft lighting, not hard lighting, didn't turn on the TV, and just remembered my breathing and my relaxation techniques. And before I knew it, I had fallen asleep. Fantastic. So it does it does work, which was cool. So it was a, it was a big week, and I got promoted at the Pawtucket Red Sox to doing full-time camera. 
uh, which was pretty cool. Usually when this kind of good stuff happens, I usually wait for the other shoe to drop, <laughs> but I'm just riding with it right now. So it was a very eventful couple of weeks, which was which was really good. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was, it was, it was a pretty big deal. So the day that we're taping today, you had the drop in center last night. How did that go last night? It went really well. We never know what to expect. We don't know how many people are going to come, if anybody's going to come. Do I describe the drop in center? I'm sorry. I just said drop in center like everybody knows what it is. The drop in center is a collaboration here in Attleboro that started between Fuller Hospital and the Attleboro Police Department. Um, it was a model that they had seen in action down in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. So we had gone. We looked at this model where we had a series of resources or they had a series of resources around mental health and substance abuse and community support in one room once or twice a month. I think they're dropping centers two times a month for a certain time frame every month. And so people could come in, they promote anonymity, and they could access resources, they could access clinical help. There's clinicians on hand. We rolled out our version of this drop-in center called the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center in September of 2017. So here we are um, in June, and we've had our, I hate doing math here, I think it's our eighth or ninth um, drop-in center. It went really well. We had a good amount of folks come through looking for services, some folks that we're already hearing back from in terms of, of getting and accessing the services we recommended. We had the the blessing of um, having the Learn to Cope leader for the Attleboro area come and have a discussion and talk about exactly the history of and what Learn to Cope is about. It's a community group for parents and loved ones who have a loved one who is struggling with addiction. It went great, I think, to me. And I think Liza Packer, who's actually here with us today from, from New Hope, she and New Hope have um, come to our drop-in center um, religiously every month. They're a great support, so much so that we actually expanded our model to also include not just resources or promotion of resources around mental health and substance use, but also around domestic violence so that we could create a safe haven for um, for folks that maybe need resources or need to talk to somebody. No, it's great because we've filmed there before. Our sister company, AACS, who helps out in conjunction with WAI Radio. But why don't we uh, formally introduce our guest great in idea. studio today? Uh, you may do the honors. Thank you. So today we have Liza Packer from New Hope, Inc. She uh, works at the Attleboro location, and I think she'll talk a little bit more about maybe some of the different locations and access to resources. Uh, so welcome, Liza. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. So yeah, New Hope Inc., we are the local domestic and sexual violence service agency. Um, so I've been working with New Hope for about a year now. I formerly worked in special education, and I always had really a desire to just be helping people and work in a field where I could educate as many people as possible and help keep folks safe. And that's really what my job at New Hope has allowed me to do. I work in the education and outreach department, um, and my title is prevention educator. So a lot of what I'm doing is going out into community spaces and schools and talking to folks from all different age ranges, different backgrounds, different professions about issues of domestic and sexual violence, bullying, violence within the community, and working towards creating communities free from violence and exploitation. So as a whole, 
New Hope works across the south, east, and south central portion of the state. We serve over 42 communities, which is a pretty large area for us to be covering. We do have our main office right here in Attleboro, and we have several other offices throughout the state where we're able to serve community members. We were founded in 1979 with our 24-hour emergency hotline. Uh, That number is 800-323-HOPE, and that hotline is available for folks who are experiencing um, challenges related to sexual and domestic violence as well as their families and support systems. So we always want to make sure we're offering support to what we like to call secondary survivors, so the people who have been supportive of and may also be affected by domestic and sexual violence. Along with our 24-hour hotline, we also have counseling services. We have emergency shelters for folks who need a safe place to stay. We have advocates working in police stations, courthouses, and hospitals throughout the area. Um, We're also a program that works with folks who have perpetrated violence in the past, and we work with these folks in order to help them to confront the belief systems that led them to choosing to commit abuse um, and trying to work with them through that and help them change their belief systems. And then again, as I said, what I do is outreach and education. So I spend a lot of time in different schools and in different community spaces, again, just working to help people keep themselves safe and spread the message of prevention and that violence prevention is possible and it does work. Well, I have no questions. That was the most complete explanation of what somebody does, where they work, and what they do. So that'll be it for today, folks. Um, (laughs) Now, um, that's... That's a lot. And, and folks, she doesn't have a script in front of her. She did that right off the top of her head. She, you are definitely in the right job. That is for sure. <laughs> On this podcast, we try to break the stigma of mental illness. I'm very open book. Everybody knows that. And some people think that that's unusual for a man because we're supposed to be tough guys. Well, I'm still a tough guy, but you know, everybody has a point. People don't realize that men go through sexual violence and sexual abuse also. Are more men starting to come forward now and are breaking that stigma? Absolutely. So we know that people of all genders can be affected by sexual and domestic violence, and they can also perpetrate sexual and domestic violence. Um, We're definitely seeing in the greater society right now more people being able and being willing to speak up about their experiences. And that's absolutely including men. Men are certainly more willing now to come forward and feel like they have some support. There's kind of a stigma around sexual and domestic violence in general. People don't want to talk about it. It's been seen as a private matter, something to keep within the home. And that really is what allows the violence to thrive, is that stigma and that shame that people feel. So in speaking about it, speaking about men being victims of abuse and speaking about just how prevalent it is, is really what one of the biggest things that we're going to be able to use to help break the cycle of violence. On this topic of men and stigma and domestic and and sexual violence, you work with all different types of individuals. What about same-sex relationships. Um, I feel like we're hearing more and more about sexual and domestic violence amongst um, same-sex relationships, male and female. What is it like to work with with men who are in same-sex relationships and also experiencing this kind of trauma and violence 
and kind of battling two stigmas. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're dealing with same-sex relationships, it can be really hard in a lot of different ways. There are kind of expectations for what a relationship where there's violence looks like. You think of one person, typically um, a man or a masculine person, and them being violent towards a female person. But we know that that's not, not always the case, and it can be really confusing for a lot of people questioning whether what has happened to them actually counts as abuse. It can be hard when you reach out for help and people don't see your relationship as being valid of deserving kind of knowing that it is something that has happened to you. It can be really challenging when somebody from the outside wants to look at your relationship and say, this person's abusive and this person is a victim. And it's not always that easy to tell, especially in same gender and same sex relationships. So it's something that New Hope is always working to kind of combat that and make sure that our services are open to people of all genders in any configuration of a relationship. Um, We're always there to help anybody. Do you think that in same-sex relationships that maybe no one knows that, I don't like the term in the closet, but they haven't made it officially public, do you think that prevents them from wanting to get help when they get into a domestic argument? Because now you're dealing with the stigma of either being in a relationship, a same-sex relationship, and now they don't want the stigma of that, and now you've got the abuse on top of that. Yeah, so... There are significant barriers that all people face when they are choosing to come forth about the experiences in their relationships, but for same-sex relationships, the fear of having to out yourself to your community, to your family, is something that will really hold people back so they won't report or they won't reach out for help. And that kind of fear of making one's relationship public and talking about not only the violence, but also about the dynamics of your relationship, it can be an incredibly hard barrier for people to kind of break through. Do you folks report to the police or is this strictly just in-house? So if people come to us looking for our services, it's just strictly in-house. Yeah, we don't we don't report out. That should be a, a great tool for people knowing no matter what happens, if you call the cops, they automatically go to jail. So so you folks don't get anybody involved. This is almost preventative, so it doesn't have to get that far? Right. So all of our services are confidential, excluding mandated reporting requirements. So there are certain protected classes, um, folks with disabilities, children, and, um, the elderly, where we would have to report on violence, but um, excluding those classes, all of our services are confidential. And then in the case where... The police are involved. New Hope does have um, advocates who work with the police and they're housed in the police stations in order to kind of help kind of make the transition smoother and make sure that folks who have been involved with the police know that New Hope is an option for them. This has been very, very informative. As I'm listening to her, I have a thousand questions going through my mind. So it should probably be mentioned that one of the reasons why we reached out to you is because the month that we are recording this is June, and June is PTSD Awareness Month. More often than not, I believe folks do associate PTSD with military combat. There's a very different side to trauma and to post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what PTSD stands for. It's really defined as a disorder that develops in people who have experienced something that's shocking or scary or dangerous. And what ends up happening is, is this fear triggers a lot of split second decisions 
in our body to help us defend against it, right? So I experience something shocking. I'm going to go into a flight or flight response and a reaction to an event to protect a person or to protect myself. And so PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is the trauma that people may experience after this type of event based off of the physiological piece of it with the fight or flight response. Some people can recover pretty naturally from these traumatic experiences. Um, Others will continue to experience problems and can be diagnosed with something more formal. So in general, if you were to look at trauma or something shocking, yes, this is shocking events is could be considered a trauma, any shocking event. For some folks, this trauma can be residual. And that could be residual in ways where people can continue to replay in our heads. Um, You know, as human beings, we have the capacity to be able to remember and identify with events, right? We we remember things. In some cases, we don't. And our bodies can relive that, even if we don't have a memory. And and Liza may be able to offer some more, like, insight. Reliving trauma without a memory of trauma, but there's a definite linked to history. There is a connection. There's fact that backs that a person's had a a trauma event. And so all of these, this reliving and the symptoms that are a result of that, that is what defines PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And it is truly different for everybody. Can you tell us a little bit more about PTSD and the symptoms and experiences that you have encountered with New Hope in the population? Yeah. So Folks who have experienced domestic and or sexual violence often do experience PTSD. Um, These acts of violence can be extremely traumatic for folks, and they really work to strip all of the power away from somebody. After somebody has experienced violence, they often can be diagnosed with PTSD. So that can look a lot of different ways for folks. It can sometimes include having flashbacks, a lot of anger, feeling isolated. Um, Depression is a really common side effect for folks who've experienced this violence because we know that most people who do experience sexual or domestic violence, the person who's perpetrated violence against them is often somebody that they know. It's somebody that they love and trust. Um, And experiencing that kind of violence and violation can really work to undermine all of your belief systems in terms of the way that you have relationships with other folks. So it can be really incredibly isolating for a lot of people. There are a lot of folks who'll deal with flashbacks or even physical symptoms after experiencing trauma like this. Could be, you know, heart palpitations. There are all kinds of different physical symptoms that can come out of this. Um, And it's important for us to know that Because like we talked about before, the shame and the stigma can be so hard to overcome. If somebody somebody feels trapped by that stigma, they'll feel even less likely that they'll be able to get help. And that can kind of increase their risks of developing PTSD and not being able to fully recover from that. I was going to say that must be tough because you've gone in, you've gotten help for your domestic violence. Now you're diagnosed with PTSD and now your depression, anxiety and panic and you've just reached out and you've gotten help. And now you might want to crawl into a shell again because it's just like, oh, I got to reach out again because now I have this awful thing because that segues into mental illness, you know, um, with with the depression, the anxiety, and the, and the panic. That's a tough cycle 
to get out of. You know, you get help for the one thing, and then you need help for the next thing. Uh, do people recognize that? And do they are they told you might suffer from PTSD? You might have to get more help after this? Yeah, so it's always what the counselors at New Hope are always working to do is create long-term support networks for the clients that we serve. So after somebody sees New Hope and they get what they need out of us, we want to make sure that we're sending them off with resources to help them in the long term. So then if they are experiencing issues with mental health, that they know where to go for that. We have a lot of different community resources that we're close to, and we're always working towards making sure that when folks leave New Hope, they have what they need in order to continue to heal and continue to kind of reach the next level that they'll be able to be their healthiest and happiest at. Now, Carrie, is that something they can go to Fuller to do? Absolutely. So Fuller and New Hope do have a relationship where we are one of the resources. Um, I've had some really great conversations and some outreach from New Hope for for individuals who were interested in our services. Now, I can't speak on behalf of inpatient because I typically would not necessarily get a call about inpatient. That person, if they end up do experiencing really significant symptoms and they are a participant in the New Hope program, may have gone through the local emergency department, so it's kind of hard to determine that. But I can say that our outpatient partial hospitalization program has been something um, that has been utilized. We address many symptoms and diagnoses, including trauma, And so we have been able to work with some of the folks over at New Hope and offer some short-term, and that's what partial hospitalization is. When somebody is, say, and we'll just use an example of, say, they are experiencing symptoms of trauma and PTSD as a result of violence, then they could be in a state of growing and anticipating crisis and what's awesome is that the folks at New Hope are trained and versed on recognizing when somebody's starting to really struggle with those symptoms. And the point of partial is supposed to be a short-term group therapy and individual counseling and medication management model that helps to be preventative in nature. So if somebody is starting to show signs of increased agitation, anxiety, depression, uh, trauma-related symptoms, that instead of waiting until they get to this inpatient level of care, um, they can come to us and start to address those needs sooner rather than later. And it's voluntary as well. And even the counselors and the the staff over at New Hope can sit with somebody and help them make a referral um, to the program on behalf of them. Yeah, this is absolutely an area that we've worked with when it comes to New Hope, it's hand in hand. It just shows continuum of care, right? We all offer different levels. Right. So so my question, Eliza, would be, have you seen people at New Hope, violators or perpetrators of violence who have PTSD and maybe in their mind they think they're doing the right thing, but they're actually hurting somebody or, or, or vice versa? Sure. So Oftentimes we see that folks who do perpetrate violence, they did grow up in a home where there was violence either directly aimed at them or to the other people in their home. So we know that there's definitely a link between growing up with violence and then going on to perpetrate violence. So that is certainly possible, but it's just really important. I think that I just keep stressing that domestic violence and sexual violence is a choice that people make in order to exert power over another person. It's all about power and control. So while there might be a link, I don't ever want to say that PTSD is a a cause of committing violence. I think it's really important to keep 
those two kind of separate and there might be some sort of correlation, but there certainly isn't a causation. I was actually going to ask the same along the same lines about how frequently, given that you work with perpetrators, right? So that that is something that I had heard that New Hope had worked with. And, the, and of course, you're, you were confirmed that you work with that population as well, which there's not a lot of resources or at least open resources around wanting to help the perpetrators. Everybody's you know mentality is put them in jail, lock them up. The thing is, oh, they got a mental problem. They're crazy. Just lock them up. And that doesn't do them any good, especially, um, you know, I don't condone violence of any type except in the squared circle, of course. <laughs> but sometimes I think that, you know, we're, we're putting people in jail and they're obviously not going to get the proper mental care that they need. But I think a lot of these people deserve a shot. You know, I mean, everybody makes a mistake. I've never hit a woman. I've never done anything like that. But would you agree that some of these people going to jail is, if they go to jail, that putting them in the jail system just doesn't seem like it's going to be too productive? Would you agree? Right. So oftentimes putting somebody in jail isn't going to address the root causes of what has made them choose to be abusive. And that's kind of the point of the program that we run at New Hope, which is the Intimate Partner Abuse Education Program. And it is an education program. So it's working in a group setting to help people who have perpetrated abuse to think about the choices that they've made, think about what has led them to this point and revisit and kind of question their belief systems because putting somebody in jail might not address all of the other issues that have happened with them. They might not get the help that they need, especially if they have experienced violence towards themselves in their lives. So we're really always working to kind of address the root causes of what made somebody choose to act that way and how we can send them out of the program with a different belief system. And I think it's important to note here that, because you'd mentioned that you connected the perpetrator to jail and being sent to jail for their PTSD. And it's important to note here that PTSD truly is, as you had mentioned, a, a possible side effect of sexual or domestic violence. It doesn't happen to everybody. Not every person who is violated will experience formal or clinical post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I think it's understandable that they would have some symptoms. And I would assume more often than not, there are some mental health repercussions to being the, the victim. But also, as a perpetrator, not, I don't know if you'd agree, not every person who's experienced trauma as a child will say, I'm going to use an example. So I am sexually abused as a child, and then I grow up to be an adult. It's untreated. It's never reported. It's It just kind of goes undiscussed or behind closed doors. And then I grow up, and I begin to reciprocate the sexual trauma to a partner or a family member or whatever. That's not necessarily a, a symptom of PTSD. That could be a learned behavior, a belief, a misbelief. Exactly. That happens um, a lot when children, for example, are exposed to violence. They learn a lot from that. They might learn that violence is a good way to get what you want or that violence uh, belongs in families or that violence and love or violence and pleasure might be connected. Um, so it's absolutely a possibility that somebody never has their trauma treated and then they end up kind of mimicking those same behaviors 
it's also possible for a child to have experienced some sort of violence or trauma and not realize that what happened to them is not right or realize that what happened to them is violence and they can still experience trauma from that even if they haven't been able to name what happened to them as violence. And these in these cases, I know people are probably going to be questioning this or asking it, but it's from stuff that happens at home. It's not from anything they watched on TV or a video game that they played, right? I mean, this is something that's happened in the house because a lot of people blame this stuff on video games or watching TV and, and stuff like that. And sometimes I think that's can be really far from the truth because most of the time it's happening in the home, right? Right. So when we are talking about video games, TV, movies where they're showing violence, what that really does is it works to desensitize people to the violence um, and kind of our overarching mass media landscape really just works to create um, kind of an environment of images that might tell us what we should be thinking or what the reality might be. Um, But it's important to be an active and critical consumer of that media and kind of take a step back and realize that the images that we're seeing are not in fact always a reflection of reality. They work to create a false reality. So the video games and the violence on TV and in movies can't ever be blamed directly for that. Um, Again, it's choices that people make, power and control, and choosing to exert your power in a violent way over other people. So it sounds like it's a series of factors, right? And so possibly kind of like with mental illness, you can have an individual who is predisposed to, say, being more likely to abuse um, or be abused and things like we talked about, like video games and movies and so forth, um, could almost just feed into or exacerbate a pre-existing um, mentality. And again, that could be probably either nature or nurture. I would assume there's a lot of moving parts with that. Um, so it could be something that they've seen. It could be something that is an underlying personality defect. And that's when you start getting into more of the the chemistry of things. Sounds like a lot of moving parts when it comes to uh, what creates a perpetrator. Yeah, so it really, like you said, it can be a bunch of different things kind of coming together to create this perfect storm. Like we've mentioned, a lot of people experience trauma or experience violence and watch violent TV and are in the same society that we are and they don't go on to perpetrate abuse. So it's when those same factors of the violence in society and in TV and belief systems that you've grown up with in the society telling you things that men are a certain way and women are a certain way and this is how you get what you want. When those things all come together, it might kind of hit right up against something that's going on in somebody's brain, their chemistry, and kind of push all of that into creating someone who does choose to perpetrate abuse. Um, Speaking in terms of domestic and sexual violence, I want to kind of clear up domestic violence. There are several different ways that domestic violence can happen, and it might look different for every person. Some of the main ways that we see domestic violence happening are um, in terms of physical violence, emotional violence, and verbal abuse, which are kind of the ones that most people think when you hear the word domestic violence, that would, that's what comes up for you. Financial abuse is a really huge factor in a lot of people choosing to stay in a relationship where there is violence. If somebody doesn't have their own finances or the freedom or the money to 
move away or get out of their house, that's going to be something that really forces them to stay in a relationship where there is violence. So that could look like not allowing your partner to get a job, not allowing your partner to go go to school and um, earn their degree, giving your partner an allowance so they're only allowed to spend a certain amount of money during the week. We can also think of cultural or spiritual violence, which also can be referred to as identity abuse sometimes. So that's when something that's inherent to a person like their sexual orientation or it could be their religion or uh, their immigration status is used against them. So one partner who's perpetrating abuse could say, if you really loved me, you would um, you would continue to be in this relationship because our religion says that we have to stay together. Or if you go to the police, you're going to be deported. So that's another way that it can feel really isolating for people who are experiencing that type of abuse. And that's a way that is um, really harmful and really difficult for folks to get out of those situations. We also talk about of course, sexual violence in the context of a domestic relationship, um, which would be any kind of unwanted or coerced or forced physical touch or physical contact. Something that's really becoming and continuing to be a big problem is the aid of technology in committing abuse. It can be used in tons of different ways and it's constantly changing. It could look like somebody's partner constantly reading their emails or their text messages to keep track of who they're talking to. It could look like putting a GPS tracker in your partner's car so you know where they are all the time. Sending threatening text messages to keep a person afraid. It could look like threatening to share intimate or um, sexual photos of another person in order to kind of blackmail them into staying. So Domestic violence works in a lot of different ways, and oftentimes they're intertwined. It's not often that you see a situation where there isn't maybe emotional or verbal abuse along with the sexual abuse or the physical abuse. But of course, it looks different for every person, every relationship. Every situation is always going to be a little bit different. When you're dealing with sexual abuse, where is that fine line between sexual abuse and rape? So in order for something to be considered rape by Massachusetts law, there has to be penetration of a body part with another body part or an object, and there has to be that forced penetration or coerced penetration. Sexual assault is kind of the overarching term that we use to talk about any type of unwanted physical contact um, of a sexual nature that is forced or coerced or unwanted in general. And that's can get kind of difficult for a lot of folks because consent is something that we don't often talk about in kind of the general culture, but that misunderstanding of what consent is and what consent is not can really help a perpetrator because they feel like they can get away with something sometimes if there isn't a clear definition of what consent is and they don't know if they're going to kind of betray consent. When we talk about um, consent, it's going to be an agreement of two or more people involved in a sexual encounter. Um, That has to be two people or more who are of age. So in Massachusetts, um, the age of consent is 16. Somebody under the age of 16 cannot consent to any sexual activity. It has to be mutual. So all the people involved want it. It has to be informed. So the person 
Um, someone cannot consent to any activity if they don't know what the activity is or what potential outcomes might be. They have to know what they're agreeing to in order to really agree to it. Um, it has to be voluntary, so you can't be forced or threatened into consenting. That doesn't count as consent. It has to be something that you're voluntarily doing. All of the people involved have to be of sound mind, so that can that can look a few different ways. It can look different for folks who might have um, intellectual disability, so there's a different conversation to be had there. Um, it can also come into play in terms of uh, drugs and alcohol. So if somebody is under the influence and they're impaired by drugs or alcohol, they cannot consent. In order to consent, it has to be done every single time and with every single new activity. So just because two people have been in a relationship for 30 years, they should still be asking for and giving consent before any and every sexual activity. And I think consent is something that is kind of given like a bad reputation and that it might, it's not comfortable to talk about or it'll ruin the mood. And that is, I think, really harmful because that kind of gives a pass to not talk about it. So teaching consent is something that we push really, really hard for. We want to teach consent to young people so they know that you have the right to say no at any time. You don't have to agree to something that you don't feel comfortable doing. And you should be asking for consent from the people that you want to be involved with as well. And that if you're not getting that consent, you have nowhere else to go. You can't move forward. On the topic of consent, I think that the first thing I thought about when you said consent is, do I have to sign a form before we do A, B, or C? But really, it doesn't have to be that formal. And I even though that's what people may think about, what would what would be like the kind of a consent or a maybe some advice on an appropriate way to approach consent with your partner? So it should be a, a constant conversation. It's something that should be ongoing throughout any and every act that you're doing. It doesn't have to be as simple as, can I touch you here or can I do this now? It can be something like, do you like that? What would make you feel good? Um, how does that feel for you? And the other thing that's really important to mention about consent is it can be revoked or withdrawn at any time. So if somebody has initially agreed to engaging in some sort of sexual activity and they decide two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes later that they don't want to do it anymore, um, they always have the ability to say, I changed my mind, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's always within anybody's rights to do that. Have you seen people who've come through New Hope actually get into healthy relationships and are not afraid to have sexual encounters with somebody even though they've been through a trauma it happens. Uh, that's the good news is that you can get through it. You can move on past this. A lot of the time, if the only relationship experience that you've had um, has an aspect of abuse or violence kind of equated with love, that can be hard to break out of because then you equate all violence with love. It certainly can become kind of a cycle where people find themselves over and over again repeating kind of the same type of relationship, but it is certainly possible to heal from that and to realize that love and violence are not the same and that there is really no place for violence or abuse in a true caring relationship. People can absolutely overcome that. You can go on to have fulfilling and loving and caring relationships. Um, it can be very challenging because, like we said, this trauma that people go through, it doesn't always just go away on its own. And that's one of the things that counseling and long-term care can really help you through is to kind of understand that what you've been through doesn't have to define your future and you can always kind of grow from what you've experienced. 
How is New Hope funded? Um, so New Hope is a nonprofit organization. So we do receive some funding from the government. We're always, um, you know, of course, looking to expand our services and be able to better provide services for survivors and for our clients. We receive a lot of our funding from different grants. And a lot of what we do is just through donations, through different individuals and organizations who believe in the work that we do and they want to help us to be able to provide the best services that we can. I think Carrie was probably going to be thinking the same thing. Why don't you tell us how, if somebody is listening out there, can donate money to New Hope? Sure. So we are always grateful for any donations or anything that we can take. If anybody does have any questions about any aspect of New Hope, you can, of course, call the hotline. Um, it's not necessarily only for emergency situations, so that is one good way to get in touch with folks. Um, our main number in the Attleboro office is 508-226-4015. Um, we're also reachable at www.new-hope.org, as well as on Facebook at facebook.com slash newhopeinc. And so folks can contact that number from anything from questions about your services and a need they have, or if somebody wants to make a donation. Absolutely. That's the best way to get in contact with us. And then from there, we can kind of work through however we can best help you get to what you need. Great. All right. Well, Liza... Packer from New Hope, Inc., thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it has been extremely enlightening and informative to hear about what New Hope does, what your role is as well. I think that you are a perfect fit. I feel extremely educated right now and empowered. So for folks that are listening, if you are looking for access to um, services uh, above and beyond New Hope, though they are at our drop-in center, I'm going to give you some contact information. So for folks in the Attleboro, Great Attleboro, Southwestern Mass, our Eastern Rhode Island area, there is a drop-in center that uh, encompasses services such as New Hope, as well as mental health and substance abuse services. And we've mentioned it before in the podcast, but that is the You Are Not Alone drop-in center. And you can go to our Facebook page at Attleboro Recovery, all one word, and um, find us. Or you can type in the search, you are not alone, and it'll come up. And we'll have our contact information there and a number that you can reach to call for services. Or you can message us. The drop-in center is held the last Wednesday of every month at the Murray Unitarian Universalist Church on 505 North Main Street here in Attleboro, Massachusetts. And for folks that may be interested in more information regarding Fuller Hospital or our services, you can go to our website, www.fullerhospital.com, or you can contact the hospital directly at one 3 fuller F-U-L-L-E-R, or you can contact 508-761-8500, and I'm at extension 2354. I'm Carrie Ballou. I'm the Community Relations Coordinator there at Fuller. I'm happy to help you. And for folks who are listening to our podcast, and hopefully you've been listening to us for a while now, but if you have questions about our guest, about our podcast, or are interested in participating in our podcast, you can reach us at mentalillness at W-A-R-A radio. Dot com. Thank you, Carrie, for all that information. Liza, I want to thank you again for, for coming in studio. 
and uh, helping us out with the podcast. Um, we are located in um, Massachusetts, Attleboro, but for anybody listening around the world, just remember there's always some place that you can go, and if you don't feel right or if there's something that just doesn't seem right with you or a friend, dial 911. That's what they're there for. They're not going to punish you for saying that you don't feel right because that's a place where you can also get help. We have also expanded. We are now on um, iTunes. We are in the Google Play Store, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So if you sign up for one of those, you can get all of our podcasts and stay up to date, review them. And like I said, if you have any questions, like Carrie said, you can go um, give us a ring at uh, mental illness at wararadio.com. And uh, once again, folks, um, you are not alone. It's not just a phrase. It's not a gimmick. It's not a, it's not a tagline. It's the truth. And until, uh, until we meet again, uh, be well out there, folks. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.